Welcome to Not Work Storytelling. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host and lead storyteller, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a myth worker, a story healer, a coach for writers and creative entrepreneurs, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, A Woman's Way to Freedom, Power, Love, and Magic. If you love what you hear and want to support the show as we enter our third season, I'd be so grateful if you become a paid subscriber on Substack. In my newsletter, Myth is Medicine, you'll receive bonus content related to the stories on the show and deep dives into how mythology and folklore can help the individual and the collective in the present moment and beyond. There's a link in the show notes to follow Myth is Medicine on Substack. Or you can simply visit mythismedicine.substack.com. Before we dive into today's show, I want to be sure that you know about my online creative community, The Heroine's Knot. Every week, we explore a new heroine's tale and search out its archetypal and personal meaning. This is the space to deepen your own creativity and build lasting relationships with wise souls seeking both individual growth and collective healing for our society and for our more than human world. Learn more at my website, marisagowdy.com. Season 3, Episode 3, Choosing the Mystery, The Rosary's Radical Feminine Heart. Our guest is Perdita Finn. Perdita is the co-founder, with her husband Clark Strand, of an international fellowship devoted to the earth, which inspired their book, The Way of the Rose, The Radical Path of the Divine Feminine Hidden in the Rosary. In addition to extensive study with Zen masters, priests, rabbis, shamans, and healers, Perdita apprenticed with the oracle Susan Saxman, with whom she wrote The Reluctant Psychic. Perdita now teaches popular workshops on collaborating with the dead, in which participants are empowered to activate miracles in their own lives with the help of their ancestors. Her book, Take Back the Magic, Conversations with the Unseen World, is forthcoming in September 2023. She lives with her family in the moss-filled shadows of the Catskill Mountains. I am so excited to welcome Perdita to the show today. And as is our way on Network Storytelling, we first ask the story to speak for itself, and then we'll dive into all the ways that it still matters. So, Pradita, will you tell us a story? I will. I mean, I feel like I come into this with a little bit of trepidation because the story I'm going to tell seems like it's the story that's been used most to inflict violence upon women and people. And often, People run from this story. So to reclaim it feels very powerful to me. And it's the story of the rosary. And on the one hand, the rosary has become symbolic with the fight against abortion and the war against women's rights and women's power. And yet that story actually begins with women claiming their power and hiding their oldest stories in a circle of beads. And so I'd like to tell that story because when the rosary emerged in the Middle Ages in the 11th and 12th century, the church was beginning to tell one story. And that was a linear story that begins in Genesis with women screwing everything up, right? And ends with apocalypse and revelations and Jesus making everything right. And it's a story that empire co-ops and uses to oppress and suppress people. And right alongside that story being told, ordinary folk women were telling a different story. And that story wasn't in a straight line. That story was told in a circle in three circles. Like if we think of you, the old Celtic knotwork, these were women who understood stitchery and embroidery, and they understood how circles happened and how spirals happen. And they told a very different story. And it was a story that looked so much like the story the church was telling that they could get in under the wire. And nobody could take it away from them. 
And that's the story I'm going to tell today. So that story doesn't begin with Jesus. It begins with a teenage girl. Unlike what the church will say, we don't, we don't know how old she was. There's no indication. But what she is, is the word that's used for her. She's a parthenos. A parthenos means a virgin, but it doesn't mean she's sexually inactive or sexually pure. That word virgin is related to the word virility and power. She's a powerful woman. She's one of those teenage girls who just walks into the room and she's got this, you know. She's a, she's a Greta Thunberg. She's a, you know, Joan of Arc. She's Athena. She's Diana. And she decides, I'm going to have a baby. Have a baby without a husband. And we can think of all these women who've been shamed, who've had their children taken away from them, who have been punished for daring to have a child out of wedlock. And this story of the rosary begins with a teenage girl saying, no, that's what I'm going to do. And then she's defying the law of her day said she could be stoned to death. She risks being stoned to death to do what she wants to do. And if this doesn't tell you from the get-go that this is going to be a story of women's empowerment hidden in plain sight, I don't know what does. But just to make the point clear, the next episode in the rosary, Mary, this teenage girl, miraculously pregnant, she's done something called parthenogenesis. I don't need a man. I got a baby. She goes to see her cousin, Elizabeth, who's an old woman, well past menopause, who is also miraculously pregnant. Hmm. Still do this. So these two women who have birthed miracles into the world get together. And what do they talk about? They talk about revolution. They talk about overthrowing the social order. They talk about the Magnificat. We're going to change the world. We two women and these sons we're going to raise are going to change the world we live in. And that's the next episode. The Magnificat is suddenly snuck out of a lot of church services because it's so radical. There's a wonderful test for modern media, television shows and films called the Bechtel test. In this movie or television show or book, do two women ever have a conversation that's not about whether or not a man likes them or not? Well, the rosary passes the Bechtel feminist test because two women get together and talk about stuff, about the state of the world. And then we go to the nativity. And the first thing we see is the state of the world has been changed because the man who was with Mary when she gives birth is a man who by rights could have stoned her to death, her fiance, and he chooses not to. And then he's a Jewish man who's been raised with all these very intense purity laws. You know, you mustn't be around a menstruating woman. You must never see or touch menstrual blood. There are a lot of strict rules. And most importantly, you must not be there when a woman gives birth. Nothing will make you more impure than being there when a woman gives birth. In fact, after a woman gives birth, she has to be separated from the community until she stops bleeding and can be reintroduced to the community. But Joseph defies all the purity laws for men. And he behaves like a woman and midwives new life into the world. So Mary has already begun to work her magic. What a message to women right? The men you know are going to change when you change and birth these miracles. And then we go to the next part of the story. And she's married, has come out of her confinement for seven days after giving birth by Jewish law. And she's taking her new baby into the temple to be received by the community. But on the steps of the temple are two old people, psychics. Okay, the church is going to tell you not to go to psychics. 
their psychics are right here. And one of them is an old woman called Anna, and the other is called Simeon. And they've waited their whole lives to meet Mary. And they see her on the steps and they say, we've waited our whole lives to see the mother of God. Now, the church would tell you mother of God means Mary is a vessel. She's a salad bowl to receive the holy seed or whatever. (laughs) That is not what people understood mother of God to mean. What they understood in the ancient world mother of God to mean was take God, take the biggest thing in the world, the most powerful, biggest abstraction, the deity, and he has a mother. And that's primordial mother is what people have always turned to. In fact, in the fifth century at Ephesus, the church tried to remove the words mother of God from the description of Mary and people rebelled in the streets. What they knew it meant is Mary is bigger than God. And believe me, the women, those old grandmothers praying the rosary, they knew it too. My grandmothers in Ireland knew it. Believe me, I know these women, they knew it. And then here's the final joyous mystery. Jesus is 13. She and Joseph take their 13-year-old boy. Now, this is a mystery for every mother out there listening to the story. So they're going. They're going for Passover. They're going to Jerusalem. Big family trip. A lot of people, cousins, relatives, friends, you know. Jesus is 13. They don't want to be helicopter parents. And they're headed on the way home. And they go, oh, my God, where is he? He's not with us. And that moment of panic, I think any parent who's ever Every parent said that moment, where are they? Where's my kid? I can't find my kid. And that panicked moment, they returned to Jerusalem looking everywhere for Jesus. They can't find him. And this is a moment for mothers too. I have a 13-year-old boy. Am I going to lose him? He's been mine for 13 years. Am I going to lose him to this God-awful culture? And she, Mary finds Jesus talking to all the rabbis in the temple. And he's just a little superstar. And the rabbis just think he's the best. And Mary walks in and grabs him by the arm and drags him out of the temple. And I love this mystery because it's every mother saying, I know, you think he's the smartest thing you've ever met. You think he's just divine. I'm going to tell you, he's a little punk of a 13-year-old and he needs to come home with me which she promptly does. And we don't hear about Jesus for another 20 years. So she takes him home and says, he's mine. I'm the mother of God. I'm the goddess. And this is my child, not yours. He doesn't belong in the temple with the priests. And this is radical. This is how people knew the story. These old women were sitting in the back of the church while the priests did their stuff in Latin at the front of the church. And the priests were telling their story, and the old women were telling this story. But the next part of the story, the next five episodes, are heartbreaking. Because Mary does lose her son to the temple, and she does lose him to empire. And he goes back to Jerusalem, and he goes back to the temple. And the powers that be do to our children what they always do. They send our sons to war. They send our sons into violence. They destroy our children. Empire destroys our children. And we watch empire destroy this child. We watch him, his body destroyed. We watch him mocked. We watch him crucified, killed. And we have to remember that to the powers that be for the Roman Empire, this was a just death. This is an insurrectionist. This is a terrorist. Good riddance. We're following the law. The court of law has con. And how many mothers around the world, in country after country, from Ireland to America to everywhere, have sat in that court and watched their child condemned to death by a 
government assure it was doing the right thing? And what did this mean for people in colonized countries like Ireland to be praying about their sons and their fears about their own sons? So we move through the sorrow. That's the thing I like about Irish culture. We don't we don't bypass the sorrow. We go right into the belly of the beast. We go there. We keen. We go to the foot of the cross. And because we don't bypass the sorrow, because we go right into it, because we look at, we don't take our eyes off of it, right? Suddenly, we enter the last part of the story, which is, the realm of magic and miracles. Because we stay true with our love and our power, the goddess brings magic back to the world. The child is reborn. The people are healed. People are able to talk to each other, all kinds of magic. The goddess can rebirth magic into the world. The great goddess, and then she goes to sleep. She rebirths magic into the world and she disappears. And we feel her disappearance like sleeping beauty. She doesn't die. She just goes to sleep for millennia. And that's the assumption. That's the second, the penultimate mystery of the rosary. Where is she? Where is the mother? She's asleep. She's right here, but she's asleep. And then the last mystery. And here's the most amazing thing. The church tried for centuries to get people to change the rosary and end it with revelations and apocalypse and the last judgment. That's where the rosary should end. And people said, uh, no, that's not where it ends. It ends with Mary coming back. It ends with Mary being crowned queen of heaven and queen of earth and displacing all this foolishness. And the rosary ends in the pictures of Mary. What people knew is she's not an old lady anymore. When she wakes up, when her prince comes and kisses her awake, suddenly she's with a prince. She's She and Jesus are suddenly a holy couple. And in pictures of the coronation, you'll frequently see them portrayed like a married couple at a wedding. And in fact, in mysteries that go back before Christianity, it is a wedding. It's a wedding of an older god, Dionysus, with an older goddess, Ariadne. And he arrives and he crowns Ariadne and says, you are the mother of gods. You are the great mother. And you are the queen of heaven and earth. And I love you. And that's where the rosary ends. And then they start having babies and the rosary starts all over again because that's what always happens. And there is no end of the world. <laughs> In the mother's story, we don't end with the last judgment. We end with a marriage. We end with uh, the marriage of the God and goddess and the world re-greened and renewed. And what do, what do women want? We want a wedding and grandchildren. And that's where the rosary ends. So that is the story that women were telling and the church has tried to take away from us. Perdita, thank you for giving us the story back. For You're passing welcome. it on to new sets of hands and new sets of hands. Because of course, that's what the rosary is, is the beads we hold in our hands that reflect what's in our hearts, right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And the rosary is itself like an umbilical cord connecting yeah. us to the mother. Yes. Yes. Of course, they can't see, but we're both holding our beads right now. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course. Cooking up trouble. Here we are in our visitation, cooking up some trouble. As any good heroine and any good witch and any good goddess would, right? Exactly. Oh, well, there's so many places to dip in. I want to, well, we'll begin at the ending that's not an ending. And that sense of, I love how you offer us this story as an, the ultimate heroine's tale in so many ways. Because of course we know that in here we are in the 21st century and we've looked back and we said, oh, the Disneyfication of women's stories and oh, fairy tales. And oh, look, all they ever want is to get kissed at the end and have a wedding. And that's been reviled because it often seemed like such a limited 
set of options for women because there was one option. It was heterosexual partnership and et cetera. And yet, why is it that that has been such an enduring story? Is it because there is so many gateways to love and creation and new birth? Because at the very beginning of your story, I just love how it occurred to me. I never thought of it this way before. Is that when you're a teenage girl, what's your ultimate act of creativity? It's to make a new life. And what if that isn't seen as a problematic teen pregnancy, but is instead of seen as this massively amazing creative act, which I think we forget that too in the path. Well, also, and, and the rosary, these episodes that I described in the rosary are called mysteries. Mm. They're not answers. They're mm. not dogma delivery systems. Mm. They're not a pious catechism you have to adhere to. They're mysteries. And what does it mean to call them mysteries? The mystery religions of the Mediterranean, and this is what they're direct. So when we're praying the rosary, we're praying one of somebody, we are praying the mysteries of Dionysus, we're praying the mysteries of Isis and Osiris, we're praying the Eleusinian mysteries of Demeter and Persephone. So we're aligning ourselves with really, really old stories that go way far back. And so we are engaging, what is the mystery of creation? To me, that first mystery of the Annunciation isn't about, I've heard Catholic priests say, you know, a 13-year-old girl consented to be raped by God to bring, bring, you know, basically to bring life into the world and didn't have an abortion, right? Mm. And instead of saying, where does the universe come from? How does the cosmos begin? Mm. The cosmos begins because the mother says, now. The mother says, yes. Where does creation begin? It begins with this empowered, defiant yes. And yes only makes sense when no is an option. And that's the other thing. She says, yes, yes doesn't mean anything if you can't say no. Obviously, she can say no. Yes. She has said no before. You know, one of the characters I'm fascinated by is Joan of Arc. And when Joan of Arc's guides give her her enunciation, They come to her and say, you got to go crown the king of France and liberate this country. She says no. Right. She says no for four years. They keep coming back. Well, what about now? Right. Right. So I think that the element of choice in the story has to be honored. Yeah. And also that the creative, I look at teenage girls and their power. They can do anything because they don't know they can't. Mm. Yes. Yes. Oh, I'm supposed to birth a new universe? Okay. I I can do that. Sure. I've got time before I got to start my homework. Oh, and what happens when we start to look at creative potential as those sort of things that come in through the cracks? We tell these enormous stories that sound like the creation of heaven and earth happened through the mother of God. And they also happen in the space between a couple of beads and in the space between on commercials. And it happens with a a woman begins this story. Not just a woman, a teenage girl, the most disempowered. Mm -hmm. We forget how few rights women had. And for this story to begin there, to center the story on women and not Mm -hmm. on men is itself such a defiant act. As the mother of a 13-year-old girl, I just feel this extra resonantly right now. And I think we're called to picture ourselves at 13 or the 13-year-olds in our lives. We've been through these passages. They're part of human life and are so much more than human life. I just want to say, because I'm always trying to deconstruct the church's mythology, that there's no scholarly gospel evidence for the actual age of Mary. They want to call her 13 because women tend to menstruate at 13 in our culture. Mm-hmm. But in that culture, more likely 15 or 16. And then we could have been, she could have been 22 years old. We have no idea. She just wasn't a married woman. Right. Right. And that I want to just say is important just because it's part of calling Mary 13 is to disempower her. Mm-hmm. And then, then the desire, you know, what if Mary was a 23 year old? Right. <laughs> not, not not to say that 13-year-old girls aren't also just powerhouses of wonder, because they are. I've had one. Yeah. 
And I love how it begins with a teenage girl and ends with a teenage boy. Right. Right. That that teenage girl grows up to rescue that teenage boy. And these mysteries, these mysteries are like knot work, Marissa. Mm -hmm. They fold over each other. They inform each other. They have conversations with each other. And the mystery religions were designed almost like the koan tradition in Zen to take us into the most deep spiritual places in our own souls. Mm -hmm. And they tend to. They become very personal. At its heart, this story invites us to tell our own stories. Absolutely. And knowing that there's so many lenses that, of course, how many different ways have we looked at the story of the nativity, of the birth of Jesus? Like, I'm right now I'm very deep in studying Bridget, goddess and saint. And of course, part of the Celtic tradition says that Bridget herself was the midwife to Mary at that moment. So I, but of course, and that is as true as Joseph being the midwife and all these different ways. And people have taken the story and pulled it through their tradition and found that next liberating breath that says, this helps explain where we've been and where we've, we're going. Because it's actually in the very first episode of the podcast, way back in season one, Kate Chadbourne came and told a story of Bridget, where it was actually Bridget who helped Mary on the day when she was to be churched. And as you were mentioning, that sense of having to wait. And of course, that's now blending the Christian tradition into the Jewish tradition. Right. So we're doing all these layerings. But knowing how all the myths and legends grow around this, it was just so interesting to think about the other kind of the holographic nature of this story and how in Ireland and Scotland, they created that, that Bridget was the one who went and she actually, she put a burning harrow on her head to distract attention so that Mary could quietly enter the church without having to be seen. Because in that case, they were creating a myth of a, maybe a meeker Mary, and they had Bridget taking that stage. But again, it's just a different way of the story having been held because the mystery just keeps rippling outward, right? And yeah, and it's also important to remember these were oral stories. Right. And a lot of magic can be transmitted orally that can't be transmitted when it's written down. So in fact, thing about an oral story, and the rosary comes from an oral tradition, not a written tradition, mm -hmm. is that it can change and adapt to suit whatever people need in the particular cultural context they're in. For me, right now, I've been working with Joseph, and I love the idea of this man who, and I, you know, I will pull a plug. My daughter has written a, an incredible book called The Madonna Secret coming out next August that is a reclamation of that figure of Joseph in many ways. Yeah. And what it means to be there and to be the midwife. I mean, I personally have a practice on Christmas Eve in which I let my own spirit go back to be midwife at that moment mm -hmm. and invite all the women I know to come midwife life back into the earth. Oh, that's beautiful. What would I want if I were that young woman giving birth alone? I would want to feel all the ancestral mothers. And I think that's what Bridget is. I think what happens is all the goddesses show up. All the old mothers show up. If we could all know that whenever we give birth, the mothers, by so many different names, are coming to midwife mm. us in those moments. As you mentioned, Sophie and her upcoming book, and of course, Sophie was on the podcast last season in season two. I was actually just listening to another interview that she gave this morning, and she was speaking about that sense of the oral tradition and that sense of when we speak things into the world rather than in the literate, where that sense of as we speak the next syllable into the world, the old syllable sort of fades away and yet is still held in, in a different space than it would be if it was written on paper. So it just feels an important echo to... Oral stories last longer than written stories. And I know that seems counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. We think that, you know, in order to get something to last, we have to write it down. But in fact, written stories vanish. Mm -hmm. And the languages become forgotten. The books disappear. Right. Cinderella is one of the oldest stories in the world. It may be 50,000 years old. Hmm. And the reason it lasts is because it's told and retold and remade, taken apart and remade for each new people and each new generation. And so it lasts. And I'm fascinated by oral storytelling and the oral tradition with the rosary because it is, you know, the mysteries of Isis and Osiris have disappeared. The, the mystery religions were never written down. So we don't, quote, know 
what the mysteries were at Ephesus. We don't know what the mysteries were at Eleusis. We don't know what they were, except we do know because we have them in the rosary. Yes. It's that holograph again. They've been mapped on to this new story. Mm. Many of the Madonna statues in Europe were just reconfigured statues of Isis and Horus. Of course. Yes. Yes. This feels so out of time, and yet I have to bring this in, and it's just so interesting because I feel like my 13-year-old daughter is here with us right now in the sense that she's actually in her school play version of Cinderella, and she's playing the wicked stepmother. So just that overlaying of, I mean, a 50,000-year-old story told in this, and it's the Rodgers and Hammerstein version, of course, redone a little bit for 2023, produced by a bunch of kids between the ages of 11 and 13 playing out these old roles and watching my daughter act as a mother has been so interesting because we've talked about tone of voice and how a mother would talk and how, well, do you talk differently than your daughter's talk? What is that like? And it's just been such a rich opportunity in the car driving to dance class to be with this ancient story for how she's going to enact it. Well, one of the things that's fascinating about that story is the wicked stepmother of course is a later edition say more it's a patriarchal edition obviously because in the original story cinderella is a girl without a mother and without a mother to protect her and empower her Mm. and it's the ancestral mother the goddess mother the godmother mother as goddess who appears to empower her to be seen as who she really is Mm. and we can say like oh it's just a fairy tale that ends with the shoe fitting but you know, what do we want for our children? We want the shoe to fit. We want this marriage to work. We want their bodies to fit together just right. We want their lives to fit together just right. And we want our daughters to be seen as the empresses they really are. Oh, and I love that takes us right back to where you ended the story with that sense of the ending is with a sacred marriage that is yet another new beginning. I love the story of Dionysus because Dionysus, you know, many Christians don't realize, of course, that the story, you know, Jesus was sort of recognized, his power came from being recognized as Dionysus. Right. And that many of the rituals of the early church were Dionysian rituals that had been forbidden. And now the the worship of Dionysus was forbidden because he was so radical Mm -hmm. and he was a revolutionary. And so that becomes, Jesus becomes the new Dionysus. I mean, the immortality key is, there's a wonderful book about this, but Dionysus loves women. That's what he's so known for. Just loves, he comes upon Ariadne, you know, and she's been romanced by Theseus and abandoned by him. And he, you know, she said the worst boyfriend in the world. And she's sitting there on Naxos crying her little heart out with fury and upsetness. And he's killed her brother, you know, he's left her. He's, He's been a total creep. And Dionysus comes up to her and he says, why are you crying about a man when you can have a God? So dreamy. (laughs) I love it. Why are you crying about a man when you can have a God? And then he goes and he sits on her lap. Oh, of course. And he sits on her lap because she's the throne of the world. And he crowns her with stars. Oh, that brings tears somehow, doesn't it? Right. That's who Jesus is. Mm. Yes. And where does and what is Dionysus's great miracle of the wedding at Cana? You know, one of the things about stories that are very fascinating in Shakespeare, there's always a legend that a play can end either with a wedding or everybody dead. <laughs> <laughs> Romeo and Juliet, everybody right. dead. Same story, everybody getting married is Midsummer Night's Dream. Right. And so the rosary doesn't end with everybody dead and being last judgment, herded goats and sheep into hell or heaven. It ends with just bypassing that whole insanity and saying, what? We could have a party instead and you're all invited. Right. Right. Because both of them are opportunities for rebirth. Rebirth. And all the pictures of the coronation, Mary is shown young again as a teenage girl again because she's been reborn. And I think if I had to go back to where I talked about a circle, a circular story instead of a line, mm-hmm. you know, the ancient Celtic understanding was a rebirth and renewal. Right. 
And all of that extraordinary knot work Mm -hmm. is guiding us through the mysteries of reincarnation and rebirth and renewal. And the rosary is a story that's literally in a circle. We follow a circle of beads. Mm -hmm. It tells a circular story. Mm -hmm. And it tells a story in 15 episodes of birth, death, and rebirth. Mm -hmm. So it's also rebirthing an understanding of reincarnation into the world. You know, as we're calling up the Celtic ancestors, calling up the land of Ireland, knowing that's something that you and I share ancestrally. And I think part of our, <laughs> our passions and stories are rooted there in, in our own ways. But of course, I'm picturing, you know, now this is pre-Celtic, but of course, there's the great monument of Newgrange, right? That great circular temple, one might want to call it, where, of course, the sun penetrates right in on the solstice and enters all the way in for 13 minutes and then comes out again. Is it 13 minutes? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, that I mean, and, and, you know, 13 is the number sacred to the goddess. It's right. that 13 moon. And it, that's that alchemical marriage of sun and moon and moon. Oh, my. You know, it's just makes your heart sing, right? It's just those constant reminders that, yes, this is all connected. We're not making it up. We're just only seeing the tip of the tip of the iceberg of how we are in one great, tremendous circle. And, you know, to pray for love and healing and children and grandchildren, isn't that what everything in the world is praying for? Aren't the bees praying for more bees and the fireflies for more fireflies? Aren't the mountains praying for rain and snow? And the clouds are praying to touch the mountains. The erotic nature of the world and the earth is something that the rosary, ironically, is what it reimmerses us in. It reimmerses us in that erotic reunion with all that is. You know what I love is how you really underline that sense of the yes and the, the choice, right? And that the yes is only possible because the no is available. But guess what? We live in a world of so many yeses. And what if we do align ourselves with that, not out of some patriarchal control that says this is exactly what you're supposed to do because you have a womb, but instead it's that sense of very often the womb says yes and wants to, and we make that choice. I'm going to speak up and say that sometimes we can say yes to a soul and no to a body. Yes. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I teach workshops on abortion and I think everyone, we are allowed to say yeah. no. And I think those souls are wise enough, mm-hmm. old enough to know we're going to say no. And yet they've still made appointments with us. Can I tell you my story? Yeah. So it's actually, it's in my book. It's in the Sovereignty Knot. My beloved husband and I have been now been married for nearly 17 years. And I got pregnant the night we met. She couldn't wait, could she? (laughs) She couldn't wait. Well, she's not here. She's not here. But she was there for a little while because there's no way I would have said yes to this man if not to have had this chance of saying, oh, we need to linger here a moment. And in the space of a summer, we did fall in love because we had stayed connected after I had made the choice to say, I am not going to be a mother right now. But she was here for a little while to give me an opportunity to linger a while with this man. It was not a one night stand because of it. And then now I, we're the parents of two amazing children and our future is going to go on for as long as it gets to go on. But it's because a soul came in for a little while and said, pause a minute, be here with this one. He's got more to offer than you'd let him see. You know, I hear these stories more often than not. You know, in my book that's coming out in the fall, I tell the story of getting pregnant in college and having an abortion the day after I was confirmed in the Catholic Church. So by that didn't take <laughs> this moment of returning to the faith of my ancestors. And the goddess said, I think not. Good try. <laughs> Good try. But I I had very much the experience of that soul returning to me Mm -hmm. with a different father in a different time Mm -hmm. and what that felt like. And I detail all the details of that. The no was also saying a no, not now, no, not this way. 
but I may say yes at some point. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I think women have always known this. Women have always, these are the old, old ways that women have always known. Mm-hmm. And that's always been, it's the wisdom of life and it's the wisdom of death and it's the wisdom of not right now. And it's the wisdom of, yes, we'll see you through this pregnancy because it's meant to be, or we'll make the choice that you will, you will abort. Yeah, and, and 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 that there are all kinds of choices and possibilities as long as none of them include shame. Mm, shame yes. and compulsion. Yes. Yes. And I think of just how much violence has been done to women who felt like and I feel like it's that first mystery of the rosary that nothing makes my husband and I more upset than we see rosary beads used in the war against women and used as symbolic of a pro-life movement because you know the rosary is it's a womb but it's also the symbol of isis it's also the symbol of woman and it's also about that female power and so to deny women that power with those beads feels like a real violence Mm. yes yes So I know you tell this story so beautifully in the way of the rose, but I would love for you just to give our listeners a taste of how the rosary found you and you found the rosary because it's not the typical route. It wasn't necessarily that your grandmother put them in your hand and you've been praying these since you were five. Oh, no. Well, it's very interesting because I, you know, I alluded to my conversion to Catholicism. I was raised by two bohemian atheists. No church, no Bibles in the house, no, a lot of culture, no spiritual anything. But my father was a angry ex-Catholic who had left his immigrant Irish family and really sort of wanted to be a modern man and wanted to rebel against what he felt was his parents' superstitious religious obedience. And I, you know, I really like my father's defiance and lack of his anti-authority, but it kind of left him with nothing. <laughs> and he was a doctor and a modern man, and he sort of made fun of his mother who got all the children around the bedside of his sister when she had pneumonia to pray the rosary for her fever to break. Mm. And he mocked her. Mm. And yet here she was a poor woman who couldn't afford a doctor who didn't have antibiotics. It was the 1920s and kids died of pneumonia. And that sister lived to be 95 years old. Don't throw the rosary beads away with the bath water. Right. Let's take them and leave all the other stuff behind. But anyway, I grew up, of course, denied religion and fascinated by religion, fascinated by Catholicism, Mm -hmm. fascinated by all that I'd been denied. After a trip to Ireland in my 20s, I decided to walk up Croke Patrick, where I met nuns at the top. I decided I was converting to Catholicism, and I came home and converted, and then, of course, found my feminism tested and didn't take. I wasn't taught the rosary and I wasn't taught anything about devotion to Mary and my conversion to Catholicism. It was Jesus a hundred percent. And it was also social action. And it was really an important education for me. I w- met some extraordinary priests and nuns who were involved doing in social justice work that changed my life mm. and changed the direction of my life. And I'd like to honor them and their commitment to that. And they really awakened in that, that within me. But I never prayed the rosary. And I left. I got involved in Buddhism. I ended up marrying a man who had been raised as a Southern Protestant Presbyterian, who'd gone off and become a Buddhist monk and nearly a Zen master. He had left all that behind, kind of on a hunt in the world's religions for something that he felt was missing. And Clark, my husband, is the most... Faithful of husbands and the most unfaithful of religious practitioners. <laughs> he, he is he is absolutely polyamorous when it comes to religion. <laughs> and he would be off studying with rabbis and he would go study with monks and nuns. Every tradition, you know, I think he converted to Islam, he converted to Judaism, and he would do these practices like with more intensity and discipline and seriousness than any. I mean, he is a, a compendium of wealth about spiritual traditions. Mm. And at one point in young motherhood, having left Buddhism behind and feeling anxious about my children, Mm. 
My mother was dying. She was living with us. I had two kids. I had my own health problems. We had no money. I just felt like I was jumping out of my skin with anxiety. I don't even know where it came from, Marissa. I said to Clark, you know how to pray the rosary. Could you teach me how to pray the rosary? And he did know how to pray the rosary. It's been one of the many things he taught himself. And I began praying the rosary. Mm. I loved it. Mm. I could put the kids to bed praying the rosary. Yeah. I'd be holding my beads. The kids would be holding my hair. Mm. Mantric prayer is one of the most powerful ways of stabilizing your vagus nerve, just to put that out there. And the rosary is mantric prayer. Mm-hmm. You're a mother overworked with two young kids and your own mother dying. It's nice to feel like there's another mother in the room. And also, you know, you're in an emergency room and your kid and they don't know whether your kid's going to need surgery. You cannot meditate and follow your breath. Right. You just can't. All you can do is reach out and hold on to your beads and say, Mama, help me. Yes. Here I am, an ex-Buddhist, brief Catholic, nothing, praying the rosary. How can I explain this to anybody my husband, I don't even know what my husband is. My kids don't know what they are. And on June 16th, 2011, and Clark has written about this in his book, Waking Up to the Dark and The Way of the Rose, we write about it. And I also write about it for the third book in our trilogy, Take Back the Magic. A woman began appearing and speaking to my husband mm-hmm. and inviting him to pray the rosary. If you rise to pray the rosary tonight, a column of saints will support your prayer, she said on the Feast of the Coronation. And our lives, it's been a wild ride. (laughs) And here we are. We're not Catholic. Mm -hmm. We started a small Facebook group to see if we might have any other friends who wanted to pray the rosary with us in a non-religious way. And thousands of people all over the world started showing up. The mystery made real. And people all over the world have been discovering what we've been discovering. They wanted, and this is these aren't just ex-Catholics mm-hmm. or lapsed Catholics or even liberal Catholics. Right. These are Jewish men and women. These are people who practice Buddhism. Mm-hmm. They're Wiccas, they're young witches. There is something about her magic held in these beads, in that story that I told you. It's the story we need right now, because we feel right now in these days of climate change like revelation is real, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're, the last judgment is coming for us. Yeah. What if we could tell a different story? What if we could tell a different story? Oh, Perdita, thank you for sharing this story. That is so ancient and emerging and so present. You know, thank you for your book. It gave me the rosary. I grew up as a Catholic kid on all sides and I have my grandparents' rosaries, but they had always just sort of laid there collecting dust. And my mother had gotten me this set in Rome a few months before she died in 2010. And it was just one of those things of like, oh, mom, of course you were in the Vatican. You picked us up some rosaries. Of course you did. But of course she did. And I never knew how to really use them until your book. So thank you for giving me that gift and my sister too. And my grandfather, I gave him this book on his 99th birthday and he really loved it as well. And he's been praying the rosary since way longer than you and I have been around. But thank you for those gifts. We hear in Way of the Rose, people come and say, how did you find out about it? So say, oh, my granddaughter gave me the book. And then we'll have, Oh, my grandmother gave me the book. And what I love is it's that weaving together that we, it's its Mary and Elizabeth coming together again, the old woman, the young woman. We can all be reunited in this devotion. Yes, and we are. Oh, Perdita, thank you so very much. As we say farewell, is there anything you'd like to tell our listeners about, places to find you, to go deeper with your work? So you can, we have books, you know, my husband wrote a book called Waking Up to the Dark, and we wrote a book together called The Way of the Rose, The Radical Path of the Divine Feminine, Hidden in the Rosary. 
So, you know, there you go. It's all there. And then I have a book coming out this fall called Take Back the Magic Conversations with the Unseen World, which is about our ancestral relationships and how we can draw forth wisdom and nourishment from them. We also have a website, wayoftherose.org, and that includes all of the words from the lady herself who continues to appear and speak to Clark on the 16th of every month. It also includes a calendar of rosary circles. Come pray the rosary with friends, and those circles are all free. They're on phone and Zoom, and they're friends, and you'll hear... We tell people to make it work for you so people come and change the words and you'll hear people telling these stories in new ways. And there are many meetings a day, sometimes up to 10 to 15 different meetings a day. We also have a Facebook group, Way of the Rose, where friends from all over the world come together to share devotion to the rosary, the earth, and the lady by any name you want to call her. Wonderful. Thank you for all of these beautiful, this wealth of resources, this wealth of wisdom. I'll, of course, link to all of that in the show notes. But just thank you for your presence, for all the ways in which your magic, your prayer, your vision ripple forth. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. Creating this show is a labor of love, and your support will help me continue to craft and share stories through season three and beyond. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber over on Substack, where I'm writing and creating additional audio magic with my newsletter and content hub. Myth is medicine. You can find out more about my writing, my book, our online creative community, The Heroine's Knot, as well as how to work with me as a coach at marisagowdy.com. Music on the show is by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The traditional reel we play at the start of the show is called The College Groves. Find out more about their music and shows at billyandbeth.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people.